All right, well, good, good morning, everybody. Welcome to summertime discipleship training of selected topics by elders, things that we just wanted to teach about and didn't know where else to fit it in the annual schedule. <laughs> so here, here we are in the, the Lord's providence studying kingdom and covenants, the unfolding of God's redemptive plan Elder Jim Esway is going around giving you guys a little handout here. Uh, it looks like this on the front. If you don't have one of these, Jim has those. He's handing them out. You make sure you get uh, one of those. When it comes to understanding the kingdom and covenants, this is one of those things that uh, Christian theologians, scholars, pastors, book writer people have written a lot on and think, well, what, what is, how do you understand the Bible as a whole? Is the main thing that you're trying to follow, is it the kingdom, is it the covenants, is it both? How do you understand uh, how scripture unfolds from Genesis to Revelation? Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a massive topic. These are two massive topics that encompass how, how you understand the, the Bible as a whole yeah, I think you kind of grasp how massive it is if I were to ask you, what is the kingdom of God? And you had to give me a definition for that. You probably would not give me an answer. You would sit there and just think for a really long time. So I'm not going to do that to you, <laughs> but <laughs> in the moment, unless somebody just wants to take a stab at it, who wants to take a stab at giving definition for the kingdom of God, what is it? You're doing exactly what I thought you would do, which is good. That's safe, you know. You don't want to just like blurt out something without thinking about it. Studying the, the kingdom and covenants has been really significant for me in my life. I, as I finished seminary, I, I recognized, you know, I, I don't know if I have a grasp on the Bible as a whole, but uh, I, I wanted to, and I had recognized that I had been given a toolbox to help me to, to do that, but now I have to spend the rest of my life doing the work. And then, you know, the things that I'm able to construct or things that I can give as a, a gift to you to help us in understanding God's word and worshiping him and uh, delighting in his kingdom plan and the work that he does through his covenants. Understanding kingdom and covenants helps you to understand life. It helps you to understand history from beginning to end and in that it strengthens your hope because you see God's faithfulness from the very beginning and you know that he's going to be faithful in the end it puts you in a place of awe and looking at how you you understand more and more of what God has planned to do and has been doing and you know what he's going to do so you have this expectation of God keeping his promises and you know what they are so you know what it is that you're looking for you know what it is that you're Hoping in, I think another aspect of understanding kingdom and covenants, why it was an interest to me, because I wanted to understand why, well, why did people come to different conclusions on interpreting the Bible? And ultimately, I think it, it comes down to how somebody understands what they think the kingdom of God is. I think it comes down to what a person thinks the first two covenants in Scripture are and how you interpret those covenants. And so one of the things you want to you know, keep up with in the Bible is God's kingdom and look for what are the first two covenants that God calls covenants and how did the biblical authors interpret those covenants and their outworkings throughout history. The goal in this lesson and trying to tackle these two massive topics is not to give a, an exhaustive teaching or explanation on them but simply to give you a general grasp of kingdom and covenants in Scripture so that you can better understand God's purposes and history through Scripture. So in that way, you'll say, oh, this is kingdom stuff right here. This, this relates to that covenant, and you see it in Scripture in your own Bible reading so that you can have a, a deeper joy in seeing what God has done in history and a, a deeper uh, hope in the expectation of where you know things are going to go in the future. 
So when it comes to the kingdom of God, I think one, one, one thing that helps us to, to understand it is how the Bible begins with this one tree. What was that tree there in the beginning? It was the tree. This is a tree, by the way. Uh, you know, the tree of life. You see it in the beginning. And then almost never for a really long time until what other book? Yeah, Revelation, that, that tree whoa, shows up again. And Revelation, so the question is, well, how do we get, you know, to, to that tree, to that tree again? But there was also this other tree in the beginning. It was the tree of the, yeah, knowledge of good and evil. Now, trees in the Bible represent kingdoms. I made this one smaller because we don't like that tree as much. But you see, in the, in the beginning, you have both of these trees. Out here, you just have this one, right? That's where we, we want to live in this one, in this kingdom, the kingdom of life. We don't want to live in the kingdom where there's good and evil. We want to live in the kingdom where there's just good. And these trees representing kingdoms, I think that kind of helps us to understand some aspects of the kingdom. It's like, well, there's this, there is this kingdom of life in which God rules over absolutely everything in existence. But after the fall, there's this tension with that kingdom because it's not, well, God's still ruling over everything, but while he's ruling over it, there's people that are outside of his kingdom in other kingdoms. Uh, ultimately, in uh, the kingdom of Satan, which is all the kingdoms of this earth, but God's ruling over all of those as well. And so there's this tension between, you know, God's kingdom and all of the other kingdoms. And we want to know, well, how do we get back to that kingdom that's represented by the tree of life only? So following throughout all of scripture, we begin with, you know, we have creation there in Genesis. Uh, shortly after, we have the fall that happens. And then in Genesis 3.15, very quickly, what happens there in Genesis 3.15? Yeah, the, the snake crusher, the promise. So kind of, in a way, you're thinking about God's kingdom and how it works out throughout history. creation. We have Genesis 1 to 2. The fall happens in Genesis 3. Then we have God's promise in a way of the defeat of the serpent kingdom and the reestablishment of the snake crusher kingdom guy. And we live here in this time of promise. It goes from, who. Genesis 3.15 to uh, you know, Malachi. We'll do that. That's how you're, you know, in our English Bibles, it ends there with Malachi. And there was a promise, the promise of that snake crusher to come, in which he comes to accomplish redemption in what section of the Bible? Comes right after Malachi. Yeah, the, the Gospels, we have those. The Gospels through uh, the epistles are showing us and teaching us about that promised redemption and how it's realized and then final restoration of everything happens in the last book, Revelation. So in a way, you could think of the kingdom program like that in a simple sort of general way. So you think, I don't know, what's the kingdom about? Somebody asks you, what's the kingdom about? It's about all of this stuff. Uh, you guys actually know way more about the kingdom than you even realized. And that's to deal with creation, the fall, the promised redeem redeemer, him accomplishing redemption and looking forward to the restoring of all things in the little handout that I gave you. This uh, little chart here that's out of the book that is footnoted 
you know, what the Old Testament authors really cared about, a survey of Jesus' Bible. That's another helpful way to kind of think through God's kingdom plan using the acronym KINGDOM. <laughs> and it starts off with God kicking off his kingdom with creation, but there was also rebellion. There was the fall and flood happened. Then there's the patriarchs. Who were the patriarchs? Yeah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and God promised that, you know, through them would come the instrument of blessing. Then you also read about Exodus, the event at Sinai, the wilderness where God redeems a nation and commissions them to be his uh, witnesses in the world. Then G there in the acronym, there's the, the conquest and kingdoms dealing with Joshua and books like Samuel King's Chronicles, and you're seeing you know, God's government in the promised land. There's a picture of it, and there's instruction to the world and uh, ha- how it should work and how it isn't working, all happening at the same time. And then you keep reading the Bible, and you get to where there's exile of that nation, and there's the initial restoration of them into the land, which was a, a day of rejoicing and sorrow, because people are saying, well, this temple that we've built isn't quite like the old one, but other people are like, well, we've never seen the old one, so we're, we're happy about it. And so there's, you know, a, a, an expression of what life is like today. You know, we're, we're sorrowful yet rejoicing. You know, we, we're in exile, but we know that we're going to be delivered. So you see the dispersion and return there. And then Christ comes and changes everything in history with his work and the establishment of the church age and uh, the new covenant. And here the, the author who made this chart titles this the overlap of the ages because it's this you know, connecting point to everything in the past where Christ has fulfilled some things. They're partially fulfilled, but there's still a full fulfillment to come in the future that we're looking for. And then coming to the, the end of the Bible and the kingdom plan, we have Christ's return, his kingdom consummation, and the mission accomplished. I think as you study this topic, you recognize and you know, very much feel the, the tensions of living as a citizen of a, a kingdom that's to come while you're amidst a, a kingdom of darkness that you've been adopted out of. And the kingdom of darkness is still around you while you're in the kingdom of light and while God is ruling over everything, but not everything is in subjection to him. So... I've wrote something here to kind of grasp the multifaceted nature and tensions of the kingdom. The, the theme of kingdom in scripture, it's, it's hard to grasp because there's so many facets that are found throughout the Bible from beginning to end. Uh, we know from scripture that the Lord is the king of his kingdom forever and ever. Yet we also know that his kingdom will be set up in time and history. So it's like, well, how can it be forever? And he sets it up at some time in history. Uh, The kingdom is described as God ruling over all, yet scripture also speaks of the Lord reigning from a specific location, you know, Mount Zion in Jerusalem. The kingdom is described as being directly ruled by God, yet also ruled by a mediator, his son, or you see uh, his, the kingdom of Israel where he ruled through certain kings, or before that, you know, he's, he's mediating his kingdom rule through the judges. So you see it works out in different ways that different times through mediators throughout history. The scripture teaches us that God will rule in the future, and our Lord taught us to pray that God's kingdom would come, yet the also, also the scripture tells us that the Lord is currently enthroned is as king at this moment. God's kingdom is called an everlasting kingdom, yet the Lord also says he'll put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. Uh, The kingdom is spoken of as not consisting in eating and drinking, but it's also spoken of as physical. The scripture speaks of the kingdom of God being in the midst of the Jews. This is during the time of Christ's incarnation and while you're reading the Gospels. Yet while it's in the midst of the Jews, Jesus is instructing people to pray for it to come. According to Jesus, some of the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into hell, yet the scripture says that the righteous will inherit the kingdom. The scripture says that the kingdom is for Israel, yet Jesus also spoke of taking the kingdom away from the Jews and giving it to the Gentiles. 
The kingdom of God, as we see throughout Scripture, it's, it's both universal and mediatorial. So you see he's reigning over everything, but because of the separation of the tree of life being taken away from us, that tree of life kingdom has to be mediated in the world where they're, we're living in the kingdom of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So God is ruling over everything in the universe, yet mediating his rule through human agents. We see the kingdom established in this way throughout the first few kings in Scripture, Saul, David, Solomon. Yet we know from Scripture that their reigns were less than perfect and thereby lacking and making us anticipate somebody who's better than all of those guys. Furthermore, the scripture speaks of God's kingdom being perfectly established through God's forever king as promised in the Davidic covenant. So I'll ask you this question. Is God's kingdom now, future, past, or all of the above? <laughs> now, usually when you have that all of the above option, you've had a good breakfast in the morning your, your brain's working. You're like, I think I'll go for all of the above. <laughs> God's kingdom, it, it begins in Genesis 1 where God ordained Adam to rule over the earth. Yet Adam infamously failed to successfully fulfill his task as we know from the fall narrative in Genesis 3. Yet scripture goes on to show how God's kingdom would grow from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, his sons, and beyond. And after the descendants of Abraham grew greatly and became the numerous people of the nation Israel, we see God's kingdom existing with the nation of Israel. And then you see God being faithful to his promises of the Abrahamic covenant, namely to bring Israel into the land. This happens at the end of the book of Joshua. Yet Israel didn't fully take the land. He was faithful to give it all to them, but they weren't faithful to take all of it. And a high point of the kingdom of God among Israel as a nation is seen in the rule of Saul, David, and Solomon until the time of the Babylonian captivity. During and after the Babylonian captivity, God had his prophets announce a future earthly kingdom to come. I have a bunch of cross-references to like all the prophets, major and minor there. So... <laughs> The, the closing of the Old Testament is then followed by over 400 years of silence by God, which is broken by the cries of two babies. Who were those two babies? Yeah, John the Baptist and Jesus, the promised Messiah. And the New Testament picks up where the Old Testament leaves off with the promise of the announced Messiah coming, which, by the way, the Hebrew Bible actually ends with the book of Second Chronicles, which ends with an invitation for people to come up and meet their king in Jerusalem. So when you read the Bible in that order, it's like, you know, come and meet the king in Jerusalem. Then you turn to Matthew, and then he shows up. <laughs> which is the next thing I'm going to say. Jesus is seen as coming in the line of David as the promised king in Matthew chapter 1. He's born of a virgin as prophesied in Isaiah. He comes as the one who will rule over Israel in the future and save her from all of her enemies. And Jesus has promised to be the perfect Israelite that they never could be. He, he is everything that they weren't and needed to be in their place. He was their righteousness substitute. He was their uh, death Passover lamb substitute. Uh, he was also the resurrection that they needed. Jesus is not only the perfect Israelite for Israel, but he came to bring blessing both to Israel and what Israel failed to do was to bring that blessing to the Gentiles. So Jesus comes to fulfill their mission for them. You know, that's part of his substitute righteousness. He came to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant Jesus then, following throughout the Gospels, he begins his messianic ministry to the lost sheep of Israel, declaring with John the Baptist, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. So, you know, it's near, it's 
at hand. But Jesus nor John the Baptist provide a new definition of the kingdom. They're still functioning with the one that God has given. God didn't transform it or change it. Uh, He got it right the first time. Thus, they're proceeding with the definition of the kingdom in the First Testament that had been made known to the Jews. And what's maintained is that they're still expecting an earthly kingdom. They're expecting uh, Jesus to come in the realm where Adam failed and to rule in that place. You know, they're not expecting him to just show up and then float them up to a cloud and give them a 10-string harp and you just play Amazing Grace for all of eternity. Like, it's going to be way better than that. And, uh, the, and you get this, you know, when you come to the end of the Bible, it talks about not us living in heaven, but in the new heavens and the new earth. You know, there's new, new skies, new earth. You're not floating around. You have a new body, just not the, the pain and the health problems and the aches and the things wearing out. And uh, mountain biking is going to be awesome. And the person you want to hook up with in, in that day is Ben Whipperman. He's got all sorts of plans for things we can do. Jesus' proclamation of the kingdom when he's saying it's near and at hand is he's referring to the kingdom being near in proximity. He's not saying, you know, it's here, it's arrived. He's saying, you know, it's near and it looks like this. It's like the the king is here and the kingdom's going to be like this. Demons cast out. Sickness is gone. Pain gone. Death defeated. You know, he's giving the picture of what it's going to look like. But the actual arrival of that kingdom is dependent on the national repentance of Israel. Which you talked about this in Leviticus class, chapter 26, if you weren't here for that. I don't know the title of it, but it's on the website somewhere. You can find where Leviticus 26 is. But it, it talks about, you know, when, when the nation of Israel repents, he says, you know, then he's going to bring all of his blessing to them and through them to the entire planet And though that prophecy was made a long time ago in Leviticus 26, it hasn't been fulfilled yet. And God hasn't canceled his plans or changed them. He's still going to do exactly what he said he was going to do. So the kingdom has come near in the person of Jesus Christ, as he said, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. The kingdom had come near as the people of that generation were standing face to face with King Jesus and him performing his miracles which demonstrated his messianic authority and his rule over all which gave a preview of his kingdom to come yet the surprising turn in this whole story is that Israel rejects the kingdom messenger if if there is like ever a time to just believe this message to repent and believe and to understand what was happening it's like this was it. it you know it was while Jesus was on the planet and but people, they misunderstood John the Baptist, the city, uh, Israel, they reject the king, and finally the leaders of Israel reject King Jesus. And after the nation rejects their Messiah, Jesus starts speaking to them in parables when he explains the kingdom. Uh, and he speaks in that way to conceal it from them in judgment, as was prophesied, so that seeing they wouldn't see and hearing they wouldn't hear, but also so that the disciples to whom it was being revealed, they would ask about it and he would answer and explain it to them. So through the kingdom parables, Jesus both concealed and revealed his kingdom. Yet at the same time, you see the tension where he's weeping because of Jewish rejection of him, but still proclaiming a future day when they will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So that's in Matthew 23 and that section of scripture, we call it the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus is speaking to national Israel about their future, which he says, you know, when it happens, when, when he comes, uh, they're going to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The whole nation's going to say that. Now, that has not happened yet in history, but he says it is going to happen. And so we have a, an expectation of a day when that's going to happen 
Like I want to make all sorts of subpoints about different eschatological views right here and why you should reject some and uh, accept my convictions, you know, but he <laughs> uh, can just store that away. Blessed is he who, who comes in the name of the Lord. Upon rejecting Jesus, the Jews, they crucify their king, yet his, his death actually becomes the substitutionary atonement that was prophesied in Isaiah 53. So while in, in an earthly sense, it looks like everything's not going according to plan. It's like, you know, when kings come and have a victory over a people in a place, it doesn't look like being a servant who suffers and dies. And you see, God's kingdom is totally you know, upside down and backwards to how the world understands kingdoms. But this is also how he turns everything, you know, right side up and forwards. His life, death, and resurrection accomplish salvation for his people, whom he came to give his life as a ransom for. And then he calls us to preach the gospel of his kingdom to all nations in Matthew 28. So you just think, I mean, the fact that we're to preach the gospel of the kingdom, I, we have to know what the kingdom is. But what, I, what I'm hoping you're grasping is that, you know, all of this stuff is kingdom stuff. Like everything that we're talking about right now is in relation to, like, everything in scripture is about the kingdom of God. There's nothing that isn't about that. So it's just understanding, you know, better together, how, how those things all fit together. So this brings us to the day in which we live uh, called uh, the church age or the time of the Gentiles as it's described in Luke, which is a time of preparation and proclamation. You know, we're, pre we're preparing for the kingdom to come, but we're also proclaiming that it's coming while we're praying for that and knowing that God's going to answer that prayer. It's a proclamation of, that God would establish his kingdom on earth with the great promise that we read in Revelation 3.21 that he who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my, my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Now, you hear that? There's two different thrones there. Jesus says, my throne, and then there's the father, his throne, which I think kind of helps understand that idea of like the universal kingdom and the mediatorial kingdom. It's a, the, the Father's throne is the universal kingdom over everything. You know, Psalm 2, we read about how it's mediated through God's Son, whom you're to, to kiss, to pay homage to and honor. But he has his own throne where he's mediating the rule of God on the planet. But he's not currently sitting on the planet on David's throne, which is ultimately what I think that he's uh, referring to there. You know, he's at the right hand of his father's throne, reigning with him there right now, but he's promised to come and mediate that kingdom rule over this planet on David's throne. So concerning the, the future, the millennial kingdom is promised to be established on earth at Christ's second coming. And this is followed by what we might call the eternal kingdom or eternal state where God's forever King Jesus reigns forever on earth from the Davidic throne. Jeff, have you already taught on why we are premillennial? Okay, I mean, you guys are already here for that. But these are other reasons for why we are <laughs> premillennial, which, you know, like some maybe you don't have those convictions. You're like, why are you including me in the we? It's not, well, because I'm hopeful that you'll come to the right position quickly. <laughs> uh, it is probably important to note here, given some contemporary discussion on the kingdom of Christ, that it's indeed a kingdom that's established on earth. I think a lot of, there's been, you know, some views where they've wanted to really uh, emphasize that. But what you, another thing you want to recognize is that it's a kingdom that's established by Jesus, not by the church. You know, we don't build his kingdom for him. You know, any more than we work to achieve our salvation, we're not working to achieve the salvation of the planet for other people either. Uh, just like Jesus alone accomplished our salvation, he's going to bring salvation to the entire planet himself. But he is going to use us in the process of that. And after that then comes the end when it's Christ who hands over the kingdom 
to the God and Father. This is from 1 Corinthians 15. So it's not we hand the kingdom to Jesus and then Jesus hands the kingdom to the Father. 1 Corinthians 15 says that you know, Jesus comes and he establishes the kingdom on earth and then he gives that to the Father. It's important to note that the church itself isn't God's kingdom, but it is a part of God's kingdom plan because God's, God's kingdom is bigger than just the church. It, it involves everything. So we've talked about the universal aspect of the kingdom. I need more room here. I guess I should write these out for you. All right, so kingdom aspects that we're talking about here. You know, there's the universal uh, oh, mediatorial and there's this other one I, I, I'd call it uh, you know spiritual slash redemptive and this is you know, think about this you know universal the connection to the tree of life the mediatorial because we're living in you know the kingdom where there's good and evil but how do you become good and not evil? Well, something spiritual redemptive has to happen to you. you know, that's how those things are brought together so that we can be to just every, everything being under the universal reign in the kingdom of the tree of life only. So God's initial kingdom plan from Abraham, it's, it's always included blessing going from you know, Israel to all the other nations, which... Last week in the sermon, I had mentioned that, that word when they call it holy nation. It's actually the word Gentile. You know, so they weren't to be thinking of themselves as Jews and Gentiles. They were just to think of themselves as Gentile, but they were supposed to be holy. That was where they were to be different. But so that all the other Gentiles would have a witness of God's holiness and come to know the one and only holy God. That's a super interesting thing to just sit out in your chair on the deck and meditate on for a while and read Ephesians 2. So we as the church, we're to, we're to live our lives in such a way in which we honor the king who has redeemed us into his everlasting kingdom. What you read about, you know, what is the, the, the kingdom citizen conduct look like in life? That's what Jesus preached in Matthew 5, 7. You kind of think of that section in scriptures, you know, Christ coming as the, the new covenant lawgiver. It's a new administration. You know, God's not administering things through Moses as mediator. He's, you know, ending that temporary covenant and bringing us under the administration uh, of Christ to bring us to uh, maturity in this point in history where it, it's, you know, when it talks about uh, like the Mosaic Covenant and stuff and being children and it talks about the church and the new covenant reaching mature manhood. It, it, it's, it's kind of like the concept of a, a kid growing up in their parents' house, but they grow up in their parents' house to, to be instructed to learn something so they can move out of that house so they don't stay there forever because it's weird to stay there too long. Uh, you're to mature and to, to move out. And that was the point of you know, the Mosaic Covenant, like living in your parents' house, but once you've learned everything, that you, you move out and you move into Jesus' house. You go, you go and live under his roof. Uh, he becomes your provider. I know all analogies fall apart, but that's the best one that I, that I have for now. And it's a pretty good one. It's helpful. We are to, to proclaim this kingdom to all peoples everywhere that they must be born again to enter into God's kingdom. So to enter it, you must be born again. And we're to command them to repent by the authority of the word of the king. And I think that, that gives you some confidence in you know, proclaiming the gospel to people. It's like, this, this is the word uh, from the king of the universe. Uh, you, you've committed treason against him, and here's his terms of peace. And if, if you'll repent and turn of your ways and, and accept his, his terms of peace, you'll have it in him. But you've got you to gotta come to him through him, and there isn't another way. And so we plead with sinners to repent while they, they still live in a day in which God extends his salvation to lost sinners, while we're also remembering that th this day and like salvation, 
you know, today is the day of salvation, right? You know, we live in that time, but that time isn't going to go on forever. There's going to be a, a close to it, and everybody will continue into eternity knowing God either as judge forever or savior forever. They'll forever seal what they were in this life into the next, either being a criminal or an adopted child. So maybe you're thinking, I want, I want to learn more about the kingdom because we're running out of time. I got to talk about the, the covenants some. Yes. Yes, sir. Mm, I, I would put that on my other little chart from the tree of life to tree of life and revelation and the, you know, under restoration, you know, that's where we see the eternal state, but yeah. Yeah. The, so the spiritual redemptive aspect is how we enter into that, that kingdom of the tree of life while we're waiting for you know, the kingdom of the knowledge of good and evil to be totally demoni- demolished. Yeah, so, you know, this is, you know, universal's beginning to end and, the, and it's, it's mediated in different ways. You know, you think Moses here, Christ here, but those mediators are used for this spiritual redemptive aspect that you would, you know, come, come into the kingdom through that, through Christ, and uh, in the mediation, it's done through the covenants. That's why I'm going to, I'm eventually going to get there or, or not. Uh, this, this is a cross. Yeah. But this is where people are being taken out, out of, you know, the kingdom of darkness, and they're brought into the kingdom of of light, but there's more to be done. I mean, you're not like you're not enjoying the millennial kingdom right now. And if you were, it, th- that's disappointing, right? Because things aren't you know absolutely wonderful on the planet right now. And when you read passages, uh, you know uh, about it, you know it's not like this. So, being born again into that kingdom, it's like you. The, the tension is you become a citizen of that kingdom, but it's not here. But God is over all. And so that, that's the tension there because it's, it's, you know, he is ruling over everything. You're a citizen in his kingdom, but it, it hasn't totally come in its entirety. And we're praying for the, this other thing that I'm going to teach you about called the kingdom elements. <laughs> is that a good transition? If you have a, a other questions, you can let me know along the way. I, I'll uh, try to clarify things and uh, if we don't get past kingdom, we'll put, you know, covenants somewhere else in the Sunday school class calendar. So the, the elements of the kingdom, you see this uh, in the very beginning of the Bible. What does the king create? He creates the king's place, which is land. And after he forms the land, he fills it with all sorts of things, uh, especially you know, the crown and glory of creation, which is man. And I'm going to put that down as people for the sake of alliteration and memorization. They get referred to in in Bible. The Bible word is seed. And you also see the king's power. You know, everything's happening according to his word, and which relates to the idea of blessing. You know, blessing is... God's power. You think about when he uh, blessed them to be fruitful and multiply what he did in blessing. It was like he, he, in, he endued them with the power to do the thing that he had commanded them to do. And so his power and blessing are shown up in God's presence with his people and his precepts, which he teaches them and how to enjoy life in him. So when you think about that, you know, one, I've given you 
all these alliterated P's. You think anytime you're reading about, you know, the king's place, people, his power, and his presence and precepts, you're reading about kingdom stuff. You know, you're keeping up with those things. Uh, the the Bible words that you're you're going to see primarily are land, seed, and blessing. So you think about that. What what was lost in the beginning? God gave his people land. They lost the land. They lost being his, his seed. They they were put outside of his blessing. But God promised that he was going to restore all of this stuff in the Abrahamic covenant, which so happens to be about God restoring you know his seed into his land under his blessing forever and ever. So that's not, you're, when you're reading the Bible, you want to keep up with the land, the seed, and the blessing. Book recommendation. He Will Reign Forever by Michael Vlock. Super awesome read. It's like one of those you read and you're just like, God is awesome. Like, you know, and understand how his kingdom, it's a biblical theology of the kingdom of God, which what that is, he's just working from Genesis to Revelation on important passages pertaining to the kingdom. Uh, what's also helpful in this book is he lays out, you know, other, other positions and does that in a really even-handed sort of way and it, it explains other positions respectfully and sometimes says, you know, out of these five positions, I'm in between, you know, one and three. I don't know which one, but they're, they're both pretty good. But, you know, he lays out things like that, which I, uh, I think is excellent. And it's hard to find a book that addresses eschatological sort of things, and uh, they don't get snippy with people who disagree with them. So it'll, it'll also bless your heart in that way. Uh, he, he writes with uh, Christian humility. Uh, also... Michael Vlock, if you, you look up on the, the YouTube machine, you just type in, you know, Vlock and Kingdom, you'll, you can find some lessons on that. And there's a cool deal where he works through the Kingdom Trail where he ties together, you know, these passages of being fruitful and multiply and that going from you know, Genesis 1 to Psalm 8 to Hebrews 2 and... Uh, you know, all the way through scripture. So you kind of have this trail of the kingdom and what man has been commanded to do and that Jesus ultimately fulfills that in their place and then enables them to do that forever and to reign with him forever and ever. Which would be super cool to go through right now, but we'll run out of time and I will have never told you anything about the covenants. So you can find that on the YouTube machine. So covenants... What do, what do covenants do? Covenants do, they, they frame and forward history. So if you, if you thought of the Bible like a puzzle... And the whole thing's about God's kingdom. Uh, what the, the covenants are is the frame of that puzzle. So when it comes to you're trying to understand how is everything right here in the middle of the puzzle work. And, and you know how to do a puzzle right. What do you do when you start building the puzzle in the right way? Yeah, you're starting with the edges. You're building all of that out. And you know that everything else has to fit in that framing. Uh, the, the covenants in Scripture do exactly that. They're, they're framing and they're forwarding history. So they're developing, they're building on one another, and they're all connected to one another. So that's why you want to know what are all of the Bible, biblical covenants and how do they all connect? You know, what's unique about them and how do they build on the one that preceded it? This also ties into what we talked about with God's plan being uh, mediated. So that's what the covenants do. They, they mediate God's redemptive plan. And so if you looked on this little chart of God's covenant development, 
You can see I, I edited this little chart here, those graphics that look like they don't fit there. That's me. I did that. But where it says Noahic, that was a box that I put, uh, put over you know, the Adamic covenant, which that author writes on, uh, because that, the time with Adam, and, and the, the biblical authors never referred to it as a covenant, and it doesn't make sense with what a covenant is, because God didn't need to mediate a redemptive plan with Adam. There wasn't some relationship that was broken that needed to be uh, reconnected through covenant. So the first covenant that's called a covenant in the Bible is the one with Noah. You know, he, he's the big famous guy that's addressed with it, but the covenant is actually made with all of creation. So you could call it the creation covenant. So that's why I made that edit. And also the author left out the priestly covenant. That's why I have that little box there and a little arrow that pokes it in right there between Mosaic and Davidic. Why? Why did they leave out the priestly covenant? This I don't know, but I emailed this guy and a whole bunch of other people to just ask them, you know, for their comments on the priestly covenant and where they thought it fit in and related with the other ones. And out of all of these uh, scholar, pastor, teacher guys, only one of them wrote me back and just said, no, I will not do it. <laughs> I, I was so disappointed, but it was kind of humorous at the same time. But I will not withhold from you the priestly covenant. <laughs> So the biblical covenants, you know, what are they? Well, you have them written out there, Noahic, Abrahamic, Mosaic. You know, it's also called, you know, the, the old covenant. There's the priestly covenant, also known as the Levitical covenant. There's the Davidic covenant, and then the new covenant. So there's uh, six of them. And you, you see every single one of these covenants in the section of Scripture, Jeremiah 31 to 33, and I'll just read to you some of that so you can hear that yourself. But uh, it's cool to read that section and see all of these and that Jeremiah didn't leave out the priestly covenant. So uh, Jeremiah 31, 31 says, Behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will cut a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So what covenant did he refer to there? The new covenant. Yeah, that's an easy one. It just says it. Uh, Jeremiah 31, 32, he says, Not like the covenant which I cut with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, but I was a husband to them, declares Yahweh. What covenant is he talking about? Yeah, Mosaic covenant. Here's another one. Thus says Yahweh, If you can break my covenant for the day and my covenant for the night, so that day and night will not be at their appropriate time. So what is he referring to? Yeah, Noahic or the creation covenant there. And here's another one. He says, then my covenant may also be broken with David, my servant, so that he will not have a son to reign on his throne and with the Levitical priest, my ministers. So now we got, yeah, we got two of them. He's like doing double duty in one verse there. Uh, you got the Davidic and the, the priestly covenant set there side by side. And then... This, this one, this is Jeremiah 33, 25 to 26. Thus says Yahweh, if, if my covenant for day and night stand not, and the statutes for heaven and earth I have not established, then I would reject the seed of Jacob and David my servant for not taking from his seed rulers over the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But I will return their fortunes and will have compassion on them. So there you, you got another double duty one. He's the Noahic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant. So he's, saying, he, he's never going to cancel that Abrahamic covenant. It is as sure as the Noahic covenant itself. Okay. So that, you have this amazing chart that I made on the back of your little sheet here of the, the covenants there. Maybe one of the more significant things there, you, you see the key chapters where those particular covenants are, and I think those key words are super helpful. The, and at the bottom half there, there's this thing, it's called the, the covenant conductor and the rest for the restless railroad away to try to illustrate the biblical covenants, which I've been working on 
for a long time to help teach this to people, and I'm going to make an attempt to draw things on the board and explain the covenants to you in a didactically memorable way. All right. <laughs> and I got to do it fast because we're going to run out of time, but I'm a... Uh, I would definitely love to do this all over again in more detail sometime. So Noahic covenant, key word for it is rest. So when you think about the, the Noahic covenant, what, what did God promise to do within the Noahic covenant? Come on, don't be shy. Yeah, not the, not the flood the earth. He, he, provi- he, said he was going to provide stability on the planet so that his plan would carry out. And, and his, his plan has a goal, which is what? Rest, right? Everything in history has to, to, to go on the tracks of the railroad of rest. It, it can't work any other way. But now on top of these, the train track, it's like, well, what, what's, you know, the, the element of the things that move forward? Well, you have to have train carts, right? So that, that's what these are that I'm drawing. <laughs> yeah, I, know, I know, bless my heart. So the, the elements of it, this has to do with the, the Abrahamic covenant. Yeah, it, it's going to involve land, seed, and blessing. You know, things that were lost and how everything, creation came out of God's rest. Well, that's exactly the things that God's going to restore. He's going to, he, when, when he comes, he's going to bring with him his recompense. Yeah, he's going to bring back his restoring what was stolen from man. He's going to give uh, man the gift of the land and being his family and being under his blessing back. He's going to give it back to him. But you know, that just tells you the elements of it. You just learn, well, everything has to follow God's rest, and it involves God's people entering back into God's land under his blessing and rest forever. But in the Mosaic Covenant, you have a tour guide. I'm, I don't think I'm going to give him too much detail. This is Moses, though. There, there we go. The beard gives it away. So he, he's, ju- he's just an instructive tour guide, all right? So uh, instruction ends up being a key word. When you come to uh, some other key words in there, you know, blessings and curses and the promise of restoration. Again, that's at, you know, at the end of Leviticus 26. And here's what he has. He has a, a model train and a, <laughs> a, a model ticket booth. That's a ticket booth, all right? But he doesn't, you know, he doesn't have an actual train or an actual ticket booth. He's just showing you how all of this stuff works. So uh, just you know, trying to interact with those things for salvation isn't going to work, right? You, the, the, the model train can't get you into God's rest, which I'm referring to like you know, the, the tabernacle and all of the laws that he gave. They, they can't get you into God's rest, but they were to teach you that you needed to enter it and you needed somebody else to, to give you, you know, the real train, right? So what, what he ends up pointing out is, you know, look, here, here's the train that you need to ride. You need to purchase a ticket, but you can't. There is a separation between you and the conductor and you don't have enough money to buy one of these tickets. So it's just... He points out your, your need for uh, somebody else to, to provide that ticket. You need a ticket to ride, but you don't have one. And so he has a temporary teaching job of pointing people to a future reality. And it's, you know, during this time in this covenant, which it's good in the Bible while you're reading to think about, you know, which covenants are, are operative at this point. Because it, it's going to change how you're reading scripture. It's going to help you know, you know, am I reading something that's under the, you know, Mosaic administration or the administration of Christ? And under the administration of Moses, we have uh, the priestly covenant. So, you know, Moses has shown you all of this sort of stuff. Yeah, like, the model train isn't going to work for me. I can't get a ticket. This is bad news. I'm not feeling very hopeful about this thing. 
this is a priest, and you know, apparently priests wear triangles, and that's just how it has to work. And uh, you know, his, his uh, key words are, you know, substitute and atonement. That's what he wants to tell you about. So, yeah, well, you know, I I I can't buy a ticket. I mean, so, but he comes along and he says, God will accept a substitute. He'll accept somebody else paying for your ticket for you, which is what you read about in Numbers 25 where this uh, covenant is made with Phineas, and uh, he, he was in a way the righteousness substitute for Israel to also do the righteous thing that they didn't in their place, but also to avert God's wrath. So it's the idea of atonement. Like somebody else can be your righteousness and somebody else can avert wrath and uh, pay what you need to pay and can't. So he gives, he, you know, he, he's the, the gospel preacher of hope and the, the ministry of death, as Paul calls it, calls it in 2 Corinthians 3. So then that, what does that raise in your mind as a question? It's like if God's going to accept a substitute and he's going to make atonement, well, who's going to do it, Right? That's the Davidic covenant, right? Uh, this is a conductor hat. Oh, we'll make it kingly too. It's like a crown on the top. And, well, just now that's a conductor hat. I'm not like, I'm not going to draw an image of Jesus for you. I explained that to last week. <laughs> so, or you could think of the, what, what we learn here, okay, the conductor. This is conductor right here. I, I should write that because this is a very, very poor drawing. So the conductor, he will pay for the ticket for you. You know, he, he's the substitute. Uh, he's the payment. He's going to do everything necessary to, to get you going down the, the, the railroad of rest to enjoy being his people and his land under his blessing and rest forever. He's the one who's going to bring you from being in Adam to being in Christ. Uh, he's the one who represents you into the things that you need. The, the Adam represented you into things like death, condemnation, but Christ represents you into life and justification. So the king's going to be uh, all of that stuff. But there's something missing on the train. What is missing on the train? Ben, help us. The engine is missing. This is the new covenant right here. Because uh, the, the problem with this train is nobody wants to ride the thing. Uh, but it's the best thing for them. That's the best possible thing. But you, you spit in the face of the conductor. But... He pays for your ticket. He not only pays for your ticket, but he changes your heart, and now you actually want the best thing that you could ever have in life. So that's where you have the new covenant where the conductor supplies not only your ticket to ride, but also the engine to get there, which is you know, his work in your place and giving you a new heart, which is all reflective of new life and the new creation, which is living in God's rest and God's people being back in God's land under God's blessing and rest forever. And if you're a more creative, artsy sort of type and you could help my depictions and do something with a computer to help me have better charts to bless the people with, let me know. But that's, that's what I got, and I think that that's helpful in uh, giving you perhaps a, a, a better understanding of how kingdom and covenants work and understanding Scripture so you'll at least have the awareness to be thinking about these things and you'll start seeing them and you'll start going, the Bible is way better than I ever thought that it was. And I'm happier than I ever thought that I was going to be. And I have more hope than I ever thought that I would have. Because I, I can see what God has been doing in history, is doing, and will do. Uh, any super easy questions that I could answer very quickly? You have one? All right. Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, dispensations is kind of like a synonym for administrations. And uh, there's, I mean, anytime you get into any of these sort of views, there's like five different sub camps in the camp sort of thing. So some uh, dispensations, the ultimately here's what you want to look for. We're talking about like certain administrations in history, which is what the Bible gives us is Moses and Christ. Some people went way crazy and they're like, well, there's seven or there's, you know, there's 27 and they made up some extras. But we want to know, well, what kind of what you're studying there is a theology of the ages, you know, that, that's the Bible word you're going to see as ages. You know, there's this age and uh, the, the one to come, you know, things like that. And understand, well, what are the ages and what's significant about each? You know, the, the, the age during the, the creation is different than the age under Moses, different than the age under Christ, different than the age in the, the, the millennial kingdom or the eternal kingdom. So it, it's just... A, the, the aim for people who are teaching those things is to, to help you to, to recognize how the Bible's laying out the ages and the significance of each and how they all relate together. And at this point in church history, we're, I think we're just still learning. <laughs> we're still learning and we're learning from one another. Yeah, yeah, so by you know, dispensation or administration, you're seeing, you know, God worked, he, it's obvious that he worked different during, you know, the time of the Mosaic Covenant than he is right now at this time in the New Covenant. Uh, you know, we, we take the Lord's Supper rather than celebrating Passover, which, you know, understanding those lamb suppers really kind of helps you build a theology of the ages because you have the, you know, the, the lamb mill of the Passover. You have, you know, the lamb mill with the New Covenant being ratified, but you also have the future marriage supper of the Lamb. And that's all I'll say about that. But Because uh, otherwise I'll get going for like another 40 minutes or so. But yeah, if you have other questions that, that come to mind, uh, you know, let me know. Maybe it'll come up in a future Sunday school lesson. Yes, sir. Question. Well, the, you know, governments, you know, as we think of them, you know, national governments, they're not, they're not under any particular covenant with God unless he gives them a new heart to be, you know, in new covenant with him. So I want to think the scripture kind of lays out in, in some aspects that, you know, there's God's kingdom and there's the kingdoms of this earth. And the kingdoms of this earth, while God's ruling over them, they're not in a particular covenant with him. So some people, they confuse elements of the Mosaic Covenant, and they think that all nations are under some transformed uh, version of the Mosaic Covenant, where they can certainly, you know, learn some things from it, but uh, God hasn't established governments to be the discipler, baptizer of the nations. That's something that God has established the, the New Testament church for. So people within you know, different civil governments can be unbelievers or believers. You know, you see people that uh, have been brought into the kingdom of light and people living in the, the kingdom of darkness, but they're part of the kingdom of the kingdoms of darkness throughout the land. So uh, they, every single individual has a, a, an obligation to respond to the king's command to repent and believe. And for those that do and their eyes are open to the wisdom of God's instruction in scripture, they're able to be a, a light in that circumstance. But I think where people get disappointed in this life is when they, they expect earthly governments to do, to do more in this life than they're going to do. You know, uh, eventually what's going to happen in history is it talks about in Isaiah, it says, you know, the, the, the government will be upon his shoulders. 
but it's not going to be the government. It's going to be, you know, the government of Israel that he promised would be a blessing to all nations, and he's going to be ruling over them and through them, and all the nations are going to come to them. And I have just opened up an absolutely massive, complex, manifold discussion, which we can pick up over the next 10 years or so. <laughs> so... Uh, but understanding the purposes of the covenants, who they were given to, when they're operative, and what they're doing helps you understand those sort of things and think them through. It gives you worldview so uh, you understand where, where to place your hope and how to understand uh, the world and what's going on. And I'll pray for us, and we'll continue on in our fellowship. Our gracious Lord, we thank you for this intricate, amazing word that you have given to us to understand the glories of you the king and the beauty of your kingdom that gives us a great hope and expectation of the great work that you will do in bringing all of creation into your rest everything to be made right once again where there's no more thorns and thistles no more struggling with the land no more struggling with each other no more of the pains of death or sickness or loss or any of the sufferings of this life which you will bring us into your glorious kingdom. I pray that you help us to have a clearer understanding of your kingdom, of your covenants, so that we'd have a deeper worship of you, uh, a better explanation of you to others, uh, a more matured worship of you, that we could praise more things about you together in fellowship. Thank you for these things. Thank you that we can be here today. Thank you for your word. Thank you that we can meditate on these things and for your greatness and for the love that you have shown to us in Jesus Christ who has come to make us citizens of his kingdom. And we pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven and wait for that day when you will certainly answer that prayer request. Amen.